Boom, there I am. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome back to Rounding the News. My name is Liam Sturgis, and I will be your host for today's show, presented by Rounding the Earth. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can support the show by sending us a Rumble rant if you're watching on Rumble, which I hope you are, or a tip on Rockfin, which is also a fantastic place to be watching this show. We're also live on YouTube and Odyssey. Even more importantly, though, I invite you to join us at the uh, still new Locals community for Rounding the Earth. That is www.roundingtheearth.locals.com, where I have posted the show notes for today's episode, which just went out by email through Substack, along with the links to watch the show live on YouTube, Rumble, Rockfin, and Odyssey. Now, we today are continuing our investigation into FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, a rounding the news special investigation undertaken to bolster Matthew Crawford's viral Substack article titled A Grand Unified Theory of the FTX Disaster. If you have not read it, do not delay any longer. It's the big fish, and what we're doing is going behind the scenes trying to figure out who are the bigger fish. Because as Liam Neeson says, as Qui-Gon Jinn in Star Wars The Phantom Menace, there's always a bigger fish. All right, let's get started. Uh, Modern Archive says heading over to Rumble Creator gets a larger chunk of our donations over there. Yes, that is true, Modern Archive. And also, we currently are still not monetized on YouTube. I'm starting to think this is because Matthew hasn't seen the email. But regardless, good call, Modern Archive. Head over to Rumble. You can give Rumble rants there. You're the best. All right, so. Let's do this. <sighs> Who is Peter Singer? Well, he's an old man. And as my partner Sam says, he looks tired. Now, Peter Singer, okay, his ancestry can allegedly be traced to, quote, a line of scholars and rabbis as far back as 1580. Actually, sorry, before I even go in too deep, who is, who is this guy? So Peter Singer, just as an overview, is the guy who it seems all of these effective altruists cite as being their, the source of their inspiration to get started in the effective altruism movement. So while in the previous three parts of this series, we've looked at William McCaskill and Dustin Moskovitz and his wife, Carrie Tuna, um, Holden Karnovsky, all of these people are sort of the founders and then next or uh, early adopters of effective altruism, Peter Singer is sort of the, the godfather of it, as I say. So that's who he is. That's who we're talking about now. So yes, Peter Singer's ancestry can allegedly be traced to a line of scholars and rabbis as far back as 1580. The family legacy is one of studying and speaking about psychology. His grandfather was David Ernst Oppenheim, an Austrian-Hungarian Jew in his words, who collaborated with none other than Sigmund Freud, along with another guy named Alfred Adler, as members of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. According to Singer's writing, he wrote the biography for Oppenheimer, or Oppenheim, different guy, Oppenheim perished of diabetes in a Nazi concentration camp in 1943. His widow and children moved to Melbourne, Australia, where Singer himself was born in 1946. Singer attended Scotch College. 
a private school for boys that was recently described as one of Australia's richest schools. He moved on to study law, history, and philosophy at the University of Melbourne, graduating in 1969. He was swiftly admitted into the University of Oxford, completing a graduate degree of philosophy in 1971. He then taught at Oxford's University College until 1973, when he traveled to New York University to work as a visiting assistant professor for a year. Now, Peter Singer is all about animal rights. While having lunch at Oxford's Balliol College in 1970, Singer reportedly experienced a significant change of heart that led him to swear off meat. I'm just going to close my door because someone's making noise upstairs. All right. Now, skipping past the anecdote itself, which you can watch in the YouTube video that I've included in the show notes, Balliol College itself is interesting. Among its graduates are former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as in royalty from Norway and Japan, as well as the economist Adam Smith, and the legendary Brave New World author Aldous Huxley. It was also the alma mater of none other than Alfred Milner, a British imperialist who led a secretive group of elite thinkers called the Round Table Group in the early 1900s. Described as a movement uh, on Wikipedia and in other reputable sources, the Round Table is also framed as being the origin of a shadowy power structure functioning as a sort of deep state apparatus. Perhaps this is more a matter of institutional legacy, but I felt it was worth highlighting. You know, I forgot to do the part where I ask you if you can hear me. So in the chat, let me know if you can hear me. I will assume you can moving forward. Now, anyway, the interaction Singer had with a classmate in Balliol College lunchroom had quite the effect on him. And in 1975, he published Animal Liberation described by the European Graduate School as having greatly influenced the modern movements of animal welfare. I quote, Singer argues in particular that the fact of using animals for food is unjustifiable because it causes suffering disproportionate to the benefits humans derive from their consumption. According to Singer, it is therefore a moral obligation to refrain from eating animal flesh vegetarianism, or even go as far as not consuming any of the products derived from the exploitation of animals, veganism. Singer returned to Australia to teach as a senior lecturer at La Trobe University in 1975 and 1976. The Center for Human Bioethics. Singer was hired in 1977 as a professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Monash University and served as the founding director of the school's Center for Human Bioethics in the early 1980s. Co-founded with fellow bioethicist Helga Cushy, I don't know how to pronounce that name, Kuss. I don't know. The school claims to have been responsible for some of the very first published research on the topic of in vitro fertilization, IVF, and topics related to reproductive health. According to the school, I quote, Singer and Kusi 
also developed influential critiques of a reliance on sanctity of human life views by health professionals and lawmakers in justifying medical decisions at the beginning and end of life. The two utilitarians seem to have been very much alike. The pair was criticized for their oddly enthusiastic argument in favor of infanticide and their offense taken when others pointed out the slippery slope to Nazi-era extermination that normalizing such healthcare policies would invite. Nowadays, the renamed Monash Bioethics Center runs research on reproductive biomedicine and technology, values and virtues in healthcare, and infectious disease ethics, all topics very much related to the wide-ranging COVID-19 crisis of today. One ongoing study at the center is titled The Legal and Ethical Issues in the Inheritable Genetic Modification of Humans. Oh boy. Well, I'm going to read the description here. The aim of this interdisciplinary project is to investigate the legal and ethical implications of technologies that allow inheritable re uh, allow inheritable modifications of the human genome. The use of these technologies in human embryos is fast becoming an international reality, and this project examines the implications of this in the Australian context. This the clarifies the current hmm, little typo there in their description. The current legal status of inheritable genetic modification technologies in Australia provides a comprehensive so on and so forth. Well, at least somebody's asking the hard questions here. But doesn't this sound familiar? Is it not eerily similar to the premise uh, of gene drive technology developed? to eliminate malaria-carrying mosquitoes, which functions, for example, by inserting, activating, or silencing genes that would be inherited by the next generation, rendering them sterile. You know, the genetic editing technology spearheaded by the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, with funding from Dustin Moskovitz's Open Philanthropy, which we looked at last week. How about this one? Preventing mitochondrial disease using genomics, ethical, social, and legal aspects. This project aims to increase public trust in genomic technologies used to diagnose and prevent mitochondrial disease by developing a best practice framework for their use and implementation in Australia. Okay, the latter study, this one is funded by the Australian government, through something called the Genomics Health Futures Mission, a $500 million allocation of a much larger $20 billion medical research future fund announced back in 2014. Lobbying in favor of the MRFF was a coalition of Australian research institutes called the MRFF Action Group. Its membership included representatives from 
Oh boy, Association of Australian Medical Research Institutes, Oz Biotech, Australian Society for Medical Research, Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute, Burnett Institute, Cochlear, Group of Eight Deans of Medicine Committee, Group of Eight Universities Australia, Medical Deans Australia and New Zealand, Multiple Sclerosis Australia, New Zealand Research Australia, University of Melbourne, New South Wales, Queensland, Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute, and Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. So it won't be a shock, though, to the Rounding the Earth audience that these organizations hold substantial conflicts of interest, in no small part due to their funding partnerships with the pharmaceutical industry. Such a substantial government research funding program benefits these companies, these, these pharmaceutical companies as well, Assuming the various research institutes agree to focus their time and energy on experiments and clinical trials of the choosing of the pharmaceutical companies, at least to some degree. The Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute, for example, is funded by Abbott, AbbVie, Amgen, AstraZeneca, Bayer, Bowringer Ingelheim, manufacturer of a certain veterinary ivermectin, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that's the U.S. CDC, Eli Lilly, Fitbit, of all things, Johnson & Johnson, GlaxoSmithKline, Medtronic, Merck, the National Institutes of Health, Novartis, Novo Nordisk, Pfizer, Roche, Sanofi, and Takeda. Oh boy, you get the point, I hope. Multiple, multiple Sclerosis Australia is funded by Biogen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis, Merck, and Roche. The Burnett Institute receives, fun, receives funds from Gilead Sciences, developer of the highly lethal remdesivir. Os Biotech is an industry association whose membership includes Abcelera, which is the Teal-funded startup, Peter Teal, that is, developing monoclonal antibodies with Eli Lilly. Amgen, also developing monoclonal antibodies, AstraZeneca, Ginkgo Bioworks, Illumina, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Novartis, Pfizer, Roche, Takeda, Vaxas, and last but not least, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, or the TGA, Australia's pharmaceutical regulator. Meanwhile, the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute is funded by investment giants BlackRock, Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Morgan Stanley, all huge shareholders in the world's major pharmaceutical companies. Okay, but that's not it. The center is also running research on infectious disease ethics, funded by Wellcome Trust, which is essentially the British Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as an ethical analysis of gain-of-function research funded by the NIH. Another project titled Building a Sustainable Capacity in Dual-Use Bioethics is looking at the use of products of biological research in warfare and bioterrorism. So you see their focus. In summary, Singer's legacy around Monash University seems to be, at least in part, the continuation of the expansion of Australia's robust pharmaceutical public-private partnership, with a hint of biowarfare thrown in, and his own pseudo-eugenic flair, which we're going to get into next. He served as co-director as well of Monash's Institute for Ethics and Public Policy from 1992 to 1995. 
Okay. Now, in a 1994 student handbook, singer's texts are found as either recommended or prescribed for various courses. For example, his 1984 book titled The Reproduction Revolution is required reading for a class called Ethical Issues in Patient Care, Reproduction, and Genetics. A Companion to Ethics, a 1993 book edited by Singer, is recommended for Monash's course aptly titled Ethics. For students taking the Questions of Life and Death course, Singer's 1985 work titled Should the Baby Live is fundamental. Okay, are you noticing a trend yet here? Singer's areas of interest are not only reminiscent of Nazi eugenics, in some ways, they seem to replicate aspects of it directly. These classes under his purview in the 1990s explore radical utilitarian perspectives on issues of life and death in the context of healthcare and medical research, including autonomy, privacy, beneficence, and justice, and informed consent, specifically as it relates to reproduction and genetics, with a special focus on the ethical problems raised by new reproductive research and technologies such as IVF, embryo experimentation, genetic therapy, and genetic engineering. Now, as described by our favorite Whitney Webb in her unlimited hangout discussion on the topic shortly after the FTX collapse, Singer's claim to infamy is his promotion of infanticide for utilitarian purposes. This is concerning given that, as we've seen, the students of his institute were in the 1990s engaging in, quote, an examination of issues such as abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia, and, uh, well, to, to challenge the ethical significance of the sanctity of life doctrine. I'm going to read that sentence one more time. His students from his institute in the 1990s were engaging in an examination of, of issues such as abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia to challenge the ethical significance of the sanctity of life doctrine. Okay. Now, Singer spent several years traveling around the world after, after uh, being the director of this institute, traveling as a visiting scholar of various types. In 1979, he was a guest of New York's Institute for Society, Ethics, and the Life Sciences, a research center founded nine years earlier, in 1970, to address itself to the ethical, legal, and social questions arising from developments in the life sciences, especially in medicine, biology, and population specifically as pertains to the growing possibilities of euthanasia, genetic engineering, behavior control, population control, and improved disease control. The Institute received early funding from the United Nations Fund for Population Activities, or now just called the United Nations Population Fund, or UNFPA, and none other than the Rockefeller Foundation. Who's surprised? Okay. 
It has since been renamed the Hastings Center, where it continues to ask challenging ethical questions such as, quote, whether vaccine mandates should be used to raise COVID-19 vaccination rates among people who were vaccine hesitants. Yes, that is from this past year's annual report. But just a a few short years ago in 2016, the center describes its work figuring out how to proceed with the testing and development of a technology called gene drives. We keep running into this now, don't we? I quote, when used in combination with CRISPR-Cas9 and other techniques, gene drives can alter, reduce, and even eliminate whole populations of organisms in the wild. Seems like they're kind of saying what I was worried about last week. Interestingly, though, the section of this 2016 annual report titled Donors is not there. It is listed as page 20 in the table of contents. And when you go to where page 20 should be, there's like four pages just not accounted for. It, it just jumps to page 28, basically. 24 Pages 20 through 23 are missing. Let me put it that way. So what I want to know is, was this removed after the fact? If so, why? So then I went back and continued through 2015, 2014, 2013. And it turns out the donor pages in those are also not there. Crazy. And keep in mind, sometimes they don't not, you know, this is only relevant because I know they were there. It was listed in the table of contents and the pages are, 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 are not there. It's like someone tore them out. Nonetheless, I was able to find that the Hastings Center is funded since 2017 by our familiar friends at Amazon, the Anti-Defamation League for some reason, that's the ADL, Carnegie Corporation of New York, Facebook, Goldman Sachs, Harvard University, Johnson & Johnson, J.P. Morgan Chase, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Novartis, Rockefeller University, and look at that, Vanguard. Just a quick hello to the end of day's prophet. Greetings, Brother Sturgis. Greetings, Round Earthers. Um, okay, perhaps, though, even more notable is one of the fellows of the Hastings Center. None other than Christine Grady head of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center and wife of one, Anthony Fauci. (laughs) Okay, now, also in 1979, Singer became a fellow, perhaps for a brief period, perhaps permanently, I'm not totally sure, of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, a quasi-government entity and think tank which conducts research to inform public policy for the United States government. In essence, it is a government-formed, government-owned, and run think tank whose donors and participants include the world's most powerful corporations, military contractors, foreign governments, and other private interests. Some of the most notable include Amazon, the Atlantic Council, which, yes, is the NATO-affiliated advisory group, Eli Lilly, the European Commission, Facebook, 
Gilead Sciences, Goldman Sachs, Google, the Government of Canada, Harvard University, Johns Hopkins University, Johnson & Johnson, Los Alamos National Laboratory, Merck, National Geographic Society, Open Philanthropy, Open Society Foundations, Pfizer, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, Raytheon, Ripple, that's the cryptocurrency, Ripple, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation of Johnson & Johnson, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, Stanford University, United Nations Development Program, United Nations Scientific or Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, otherwise known as UNESCO, the United Nations Foundation, USAID, United States Department of State, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, and Zoom. From 19... 81 through 2003, Singer floated through a whole bunch of places. The University of British Columbia, University of Colorado Boulder, University of California Irvine, Sapienza University of Rome, University of Canterbury, and the University of Girona, with quick one-off lectures and recognitions at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, uh, Stanford University, Yale University, Brooklyn College, World Technology Network, Wesleyan University, International Academy of Humanism, University of Pennsylvania, University of Bucharest, and several others, which we're going to summarize at the end. Lotusol, you asked Zoom? Yeah, that Zoom. <laughs> it's funny how they just popped up right as all this started to become relevant, huh? Skype sort of went out the window. In 1992, Singer became the president of the International Association of Bioethics, where he stayed active on the board of directors until at least 1999. Okay. Now, in 1999, Singer was appointed as Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. Describing Singer in The New Yorker as the dangerous philosopher, Writer Michael Spector provided some fairly understandable reasons for people to be concerned with Princeton's hiring choice. He pointed out that Singer had previously asserted that it might be more compassionate to carry out medical experiments on hopelessly disabled, unconscious orphans than on perfectly healthy rats. Kind of makes me wonder if he and Fauci were personally close. You know, the John F. Kennedy School of Government, as far as I understand, is also where Klaus Schwab went to school. I wonder if they crossed over. Let's put a pin in those as follow-up questions. Now, the UCHV itself isn't without red flags in this regard. Mark F. Rockefeller, son of Nelson Rockefeller, is a member of the Advisory Council. Mark's uncle, Lawrence Rockefeller, was the founding donor to the school nine years prior to Singer's appointment. Okay, now, starting in 2001, Singer began contributing to a media program called Project Syndicate, which publishes and syndicates commentary and analysis on a variety of global topics. You can see in its logo from, from 2017, its byline is the world's opinion page. So put another way, the service solicits and disseminates opinion pieces, or op-eds, from subject matter experts that can then be used by other media organizations in their own so-called reporting. 
So, a 2017 article for the platform co-authored by Singer is titled, Rethinking the Population Control Taboo. Responding to comments made by French President Emmanuel Macron, Singer wrote this. Macron violated a taboo that has been in place since the International Conference on Population and Development, held under the auspices of the UN in Cairo in 1994. The conference adopted a program of action that rejected a demographically driven approach to population policies and instead focused on meeting the reproductive health needs of individuals, especially women. Population targets were out, rights were in. One searches in vain for any suggestion that it might be appropriate or wise to seek to influence the number of children women choose to have, let alone to consider whether continued rapid population growth in some regions may be incompatible with the goal of sustainable development. Sustainable, <laughs> I always get, I, I can, I always switch the B and the V in these two words. Let me try again. Sustainable development is the institutional status quo. If Peter Singer holds any sway at all, that reaffirms the notion that there is at least some motivation to limit or reduce the global population in the academic public policy circles. That's not a conspiracy theory. We just read him say it. It's also relevant to note the ideological nature of Project Syndicate, which can be, in part, identified by its funders. Unsurprisingly, those include the following. The Children's Investment Fund Foundation, European Climate Foundation, European Journalism Center, Google Digital News Initiative, MasterCard Foundation, McKinsey Global Initiative, Nature Conservancy, Open Society Foundations, and the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Recall that the Children's Investment Fund Foundation is the former employer of current British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and a major funder of the Together trial that manipulated institutional perception of ivermectin in treating COVID-19. Come at me, YouTube. Now, more on that can be found in my previous report on the topic titled, Who is Rishi Sunak? from, my goodness, two months ago now. Holy mackerel. And... Of course, we're all expecting it. Between November 2012 and November 2022, Project Syndicate also received four grants worth $6,929,601 from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all under the category of Global Health and Development, Public Awareness and Analysis. He bought the media. In 2005... Singer returned to the University of Melbourne to take up a position at the Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics. That same year, he was named on Time's list of 100 most influential people. But at this point, we have to ask some questions. Uh, we've established that Peter Singer has had a long storied career through which he has influenced the minds and hearts of many. Apparently, he's one of the most influential. Many people worldwide, for better or worse, have been influenced by his ideas. But how does this tie into our story of effective altruism? Good question. 
William McCaskill, described as the founder of the modern effective altruism movement, himself cites Singer's 1972 essay titled Famine, Affluence, and Morality as being the spark that lit his altruistic flame. As recounted in The New Yorker, I quote, Singer, prompted by widespread and eradicable hunger in what's now Bangladesh, proposed a simple thought experiment. If you stroll by a child drowning in a shallow pond, presumably you don't worry too much about soiling your clothes before you wade in to help. Given the irrelevance of the child's location, in an actual pond nearby or in a metaphorical pond 6,000 miles away, devoting resources to superfluous goods is tantamount to allowing a child to drown for the sake of a dry cleaner's bill. For about four decades, Singer's essay was assigned predominantly as a philosophical exercise. His moral theory was so onerous that it had to rest on a shaky foundation and bright students were instructed to identify the flaws that might absolve us of its demands. McGaskill, however, could find nothing wrong with it. By the time McGaskill was a graduate student in philosophy at Oxford, Singer's insight had become the organizing principle of his life. In fact, when he launched Giving What We Can, he convinced Singer to join on as a signatory. Poetically, the organization was launched at Balliol College, where Singer first had his mind blown in the direction of becoming the world's most impactful animal rights activist. Wow. Now, as we've seen, of course, McGaskill was not the only effective altruist emerging at the time. Holden Karnovsky and Ellie Hassenfeld formed GiveWell shortly thereafter, and they also credited Singer as the source of their inspiration. Singer became a member of GiveWell's advisory board at some point, by the way. Then there's Matt Wage, a student of Singer's at Princeton, who took a job at Jane Street Capital to get rich enough to then give it all away. We'll finally be coming back for Jane Street next week. The New Yorker seems to be right. Insofar as there was a common ancestor, it was Peter Singer. In 2009, Singer published a book titled The Life You Can Save, Acting Now to End World Poverty. His argument centers around effective altruism, asserting that if we can provide immense benefit to someone at minimal cost to ourselves, we should do so. It was this book that sold Carrie Tuna on effective altruism. From the official Effective Altruism Forum, the book played a major role in the formation of the effective altruism community. It also inspired Carrie Tuna and Dustin Moskovitz to establish the philanthropic foundation Good Ventures, which has granted over $1.3 billion to organizations working on many of the world's most pressing concerns. At least according to Vox, the book is described as having played a powerful role in birthing the effective altruist movement, which inspired major donors to give more effectively. From the article, this is the author speaking, I first read the book in 2011 when I was 17 and found it bracingly straightforward. 
People are dying. We know how to fix that. We just have to donate money and tell everyone else to do so as well. And while as an adult, it's obvious that many of the details of how to fix the world are more complicated than that, the simple core remains and speaks loudly and clearly to the sort of people who become effective altruists. The world could be better, and you can make it that way. That seems oddly reminiscent of what, of what Ben Blumenfeld said on the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show, which we looked at back in the second installment of this series. I'm not thinking about the social network. I'm thinking of saving the world. Hmm, interesting. In 2013, the organization was registered as a charity in the United States and started engaging directly on the modern effective altruism platform. The Life You Can Save's website lists both Peter Singer and William McCaskill in prominent positions, presenting them effectively as co-founders of the EA movement. The organization, like pretty much every EA venture, is all about hoisting up their favorite charitable organizations. For the life you can save, they have chosen to push on behalf of many that we've come across in our investigation so far. Some of them include Against Malaria Foundation, Carbon 180, Clean Air Task Force, Development Media International, Equalize Health, Evergreen Collective Evidence Action, Fistula Foundation, Give Directly, Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, Helen Keller International, Innovations for Poverty Action, Iodine Global Network, Living Goods, Malaria Consortium, New Incentives, Oxfam, <laughs> Population Services International, and the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative. I think I said it right that time. Most partners of the organization will also, also be familiar at this point, uh, including the Funding Network, which was one of Giving What We Can's original funders. In 2021, the organization launched a new cryptocurrency fundraising capability on their website, which they kicked off in style. I quote, we partnered with our recommended charity, Give Directly, to co-host a virtual panel and fundraiser that featured FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried and other leading figures in crypto philanthropy and raised over $1 million in support for Give Directly. On this panel, you see Sam Bankman-Fried, Sibon Gani-Kaiola, Caroline Ellison, who's the CEO of Alameda Research, and a few others, including Bigger Singer, of course. So, the godfather of effective altruism. Singer has been all over the world, laying seeds for what would become effective altruism. But along the way, he engaged in thorough academic research, discussion, and debate about topics highly relevant to the COVID-19 crisis we have all just been through. And by the way, are still going through including euthanasia, infectious disease ethics, the sanctity of life, bodily autonomy, medical privacy, biological warfare, genetic editing, frankly, eugenics. It's no wonder so many of his protégés have spun on a dime in their own lives to focus on Singer's areas of interest. Though I admit, researching and investigating this official narrative leaves me feeling like I'm being told a convenient tale. Without a shadow of a doubt, 
there's more to this story than currently faces the public. And there is so much more to learn about Peter Singer. I'm just going to skim this list of known affiliations that I didn't have time to dig into. Academics Stand Against Poverty, American Philosophical Association, Animal Rights International, Australian Humanist Association, uh, Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. Oh, it goes on and on. The World Council of Religious Leaders, World Technology Network. Oh, how about this? The Freedom From Religion Foundation. As well as leadership and advisory duties at academic journals, such as the, the Australasian Journal of Philosophy, Bioethics, Ethics, International Journal for the Study of Animal Problems, Journal of Applied Philosophy, Journal of Controversial Ideas, so on and so forth. So, look, I hope that I have thoroughly documented Singer's influence on this area of academia really areas of academia, if only in terms of the volume of it. Next week, we will return for our fifth and final installment in this impromptu special investigation into effective altruism. We will look at Sam Bankman-Fried and the FTX Phantom. So, if you have enjoyed the show, everybody, and have been watching live, please drop us a rumble rant or a tip on Rockfin. That is a fantastic way to support the show. But even better, you can go to sign up as a member at www.roundingtheearth.locals.com. There we are hosting weekly insider discussions about topics we're not yet ready to go public with totally, but bear discussing nonetheless. You can even use the promo code RTEDEC2022 to get a free month of the insider membership, which afterwards you can choose to continue to support us for at least $5 a month. But you can also just become a free member and join the community. Almost everything we do is not behind a paywall. Um, and okay, if you have not at this point read Matthew's viral article on FTX and the grand unified theory of the associated disaster, it is time you do so. As I consider this rounding the earth, uh, sorry, rounding the news special investigation to be supplementary to his piece. I have been Liam Sturgis. And I'm going to pull up my beautiful face right here. If you want to find more of me, you can do so at www.liamsturgis.com or on Twitter at the Liam Sturgis. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you everyone for watching and I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.